Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. This podcast is focused on novel nasal products and formulations from the 2023 POD Partnership Opportunities in Drug Delivery Conference. For more information on the POD conference, editorial, podcasts, or webcasts, please visit podconference.com. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. All right. Hello. Uh, my name is Samantha Serrett. I am a senior director in Lily's Genetic Medicine Group, and I am here today. Do you guys want to go ahead and introduce yourselves? Sure. Thanks, Sam. Uh, so my name is Benjamin Blyer. I'm a surgeon scientist at Harvard Medical School and Mass Signeer, and my specialty is uh, sinus and endoscopic skull-based surgery. So I, I look at uh, transnasal delivery from the sort of procedural anatomic perspective, which I think is a, a unique view, particularly at this uh, conference. I'm Krishna, head of non-clinical and translational at Celos. Um, we do a lot of uh, drug delivery to the brain and um, have gene therapies and um, nasal formulations as well. So we'd be interested to hear them. Wonderful. And yeah, I'm really excited to be here with people that have been thinking about nose-to-brain delivery a little bit. Um, so yeah, I guess maybe on that topic, but maybe on a different um, one. What do you both think is kind of the next frontier of intranasal delivery? What would you say kind of is most exciting to you in the space right now? Well, I think um, where I uh, come at, as I mentioned, is really from the perspective as a surgeon, someone who uh, both operates in the nose and sees patients in clinic as an outpatient where we can look in the nose with small endoscopes and manipulate the anatomy sort of in an awake patient. And so I think when we think about sort of challenges to uh, intranasal and specifically nose-to-brain delivery, and we look at sort of the history of attempts at trying to deliver drugs to the surface of the nose, even with some of the more modern uh, devices that are out there to try to optimize direct olfactory penetration, there's still a, a huge amount of challenges there. And, and ultimately, when we think about issues of efficiency and interpatient variability, there these are not things that have been solved. And even if you could solve it in the ideal patient with the ideal anatomy, everybody's different. People have deviated septums, they've had trauma to the nose, they have sinusitis and nasal polyps and so forth. So, you know, the approach that we take is actually instead of delivering drugs to the surface of the mucosa, where maybe a per, you know, 1% of the delivered dose it ends up intra-CNS, uh, intra intraparenchymally, we have developed a technique to actually um, implant a drug in sort of a minimally invasive depot, or what we call a mind approach, where essentially 100% of the drug is available for retrograde uptake. And you know, we've demonstrated in a variety of animal models, uh, mostly rodent, but some primate, that um, we can actually achieve delivery for otherwise blood-brain barrier impermeant molecules. Great, that's very interesting. That's kind of one of the approaches, right? Like what's very exciting is um, there are now viral deliveries you can give through the nose as well. Um, although the penetration is not as much as he's saying anatomy-wise, it's gonna be very different. Uh, if you take a completely different take of um, say a small molecule per se, we have one of our programs, SLS002, which is um, a racemic form of ketamine, where if you actually give it as an intranasal form, you completely take away the profile of what you would think of typically as ketamine. We take away the dissociative properties of it, for instance, where um, the PK and the PD profile of what reaches the brain and the end organ for specific indications and treatment is very different. So uh, it is very interesting in that approach that you don't just necessarily need to have a depot or hard to reach areas, but even traditional 
or typical molecules can act very differently when you go through a different route of administration. That to me is very exciting and kind of like the secondary and the tertiary uh, effects of those. So. Yeah, no, those are both honestly really exciting developments both in the space of administration and in the space of kind of repurposing existing therapeutics through the nasal pathway. Um, and I guess, you know, take this question with whatever kind of flavor you're, you were recently talking about, but thinking about either new developments for administration or repurposing existing drugs, what would you say are some of the greatest challenges in doing so in intranasal delivery? Well, again, coming sort of from into the field as an outsider, as a clinician academic, not an industry uh, person, I think the the issue that I see is really the the blood-brain barrier as a sort of a physical and metaphorical barrier to upstream development in R&D. You know, it seems to me that while we have seen, and I think the prior panel demonstrated, that there are new and novel formulations and molecules and um, like receptor media transcytotic type of uh, approaches that are being developed, in general, the appetite for R&D in this space is limited because of the sort of blanket conception that the blood-brain barrier is going to prevent uptake, you're going to have to do intrathecal, uh, you know, intrathecal delivery or direct intraparenchymal delivery with the obviously associated morbidities uh, that come with that, in addition to just, you know, patient journey issues and costs to the healthcare system. So I think, you know, the that barrier to entry is an issue. So I think creation of enabling platform technologies like our depot approach or others are things that are still necessary in the field to stimulate and um, promote the development, you know, across the across the board. You're absolutely right in saying that it's actually a barrier to development, not just the blood-brain barrier. Um, so null formulations can help in this regard to help cross or help it stick longer in the nasal mucosa, and that being a very under-researched field other than from the late 90s. There is a lot of resurgence of interest now in that with the, um, the vaccines is one aspect of it where uh, intranasal delivery of those with COVID-19 has also picked up research in that field quite a bit now. And there is a lot of interest and it's um, ripe for innovation, I would say, in terms of how you can access one of the critical organs brain through that. And one of the challenges, as you asked over there, would be how does, uh, say, a delivery route through the nasal compare to, say, something when you give through an IV or a sub-Q or whatnot? They're having extensive historical data from some of these other routes and comparing it to what your pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic effects would be, that would be critical. And the other important uh, aspect of it would be the kind of indication and the kind of symptoms that you're going after. And you really need to know what your active molecule is and not just that the primary, but like what your secondary and tertiary are and how those impact and what make the therapy effective, so to say. And being able to understand that in detail can help you formulate so that you might be able to get away by giving one-tenth of the dose and still have the best effect and reach your target organ uh, much effectively. So uh, that's, I think, a very innovative way to deliver. Yeah, and I think just to sort of go build upon that, when we think about transnasal delivery, be it for CNS approaches or for other approaches where we're going transmucosal for systemic delivery, I think the we can use the uh, transnasal approach as a platform to both deliver drugs that otherwise would not penetrate the CNS, but then the other question is, can we use it as a platform to reduce systemic exposure where we wouldn't want it? 
So in some drugs, we want systemic uptake uh, because it's a wrap, like Narcan, for example. But in other cases, we don't want systemic exposure, particularly with some of the nucleic acid and viral vectors. So I think um, from both of those perspectives, it's an interesting approach and, and has to be sort of further teased out. Kind of digging into that kind of PKPD point, um, obviously they're really good models for kind of absorption, distribution, metabolism, excretion in the IV and subcutaneous setting. Do you think that those models exist for intranasal administration? And if so, or if not, kind of what are some gaps that might still need to be filled in that space? I can go, there is um, not a lot currently, which makes it hard from a regulatory standpoint as well. Um, we had a very interesting panel this summer with uh, the FDA present actually, and where they were thinking of the oral nasal pathway for some of their drugs for GI, whatnot. Uh, that is not still well defined, but that's where, as I said, the opportunity lies in terms of if you know your compound well and like how it distributes, then you can go with much lesser of the dose. So you prevent those systemic exposure, which is an issue in some other diseases and indications. So that's an advantage, I would say, if you know your compound well and what you're targeting and in, uh, your indication is for. Yeah, and I, I also think it's a challenge just from the physical delivery perspective of the, the uh, rodent nose obviously is very small and the ability to get drug into the rodent nose, be it uh, you know, a sniffing technique or a lavage technique, these are not physiologic, clinically applicable mechanisms, and so the, the data outputs that you get and the readouts really are often, uh, don't correlate with what we would see in higher order animals, primates, and humans. Um, there certainly are large animals uh, like sheep and dog, for example, that do recapitulate the nasal anatomy more readily, but they're not, you know, typically commonly used, I think, um, as, you know, PKPD models. Yeah, I think, you know, digging into that a little bit further, um, what would be your preferred models, thinking through, like, preclinical development of an intranasal formulation? I guess, in what context would you would you leverage them, um, whether it is for kind of understanding distribution and efficacy or potential toxicity? Um, yeah, one of the challenges there is, like, developing these models. And there are some groups and some academic groups. The University of Alberta group has a very nice mini-nose where you can actually model and how it's delivered. And not just that, but you can pretty much say what person goes through the oral route versus the nasal route, and how much of it goes directly to the brain. It again depends on like how you administer, how the human factors of what you administer, and your angle of the spray matters as well. There are some innovations now happening with some device companies trying to get a more deeper delivery to the mucosa so that it directly goes to the brain. So all of those plays into a factor, and there is currently no validated model or things that are um, even approvable uh, by the agency to say, okay, you can use this as a PKPD model. So that presents both its challenges, but also gives innovative pathways for you to go by using the traditional PKPD method to say, if you administer and you're able to achieve or bioequivalent the criteria, then you're taking the drug where it needs to go at a much less, lesser dose. I think it's such a complicated question, and there's there's so, there's so many levels to answer that, and I really think it, it depends on what you're trying to get out of it. So just for example, even just modeling the fate of a drug that hits the mucosal surface that has to permeate through the gel and sole layer of the mucus while it's contending with mucociliary clearance, while it's contending with proteases and nucleases within the mucus, and then being absorbed through the cilia, and then ultimately into the epithelial cells, that in of itself, there aren't very good models for. I mean, you can look at CFD models and some radionuclide labeled models, but you know, it, I think you have to sort of pick what the specific outcome you're looking for and then pick the model that most readily recapitulates that. And some of them are, are sort of in silico, some of them are in vivo, some of them are even in vitro, like air-liquid interface uh, models and things like that. 
Yep, I agree, and having CFT, physical, and all of them together, it's a very complex, multidimensional problem, like most of biology. So. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, so kind of pivoting topic a little bit, you know, previously, sort of historically, small molecule drugs have really dominated the clinical landscape, but recently, peptide protein therapeutics, um, genetic medicines have kind of begun to emerge. Where do you see sort of the greatest potential for intranasal delivery in terms of near-term application and then long-term application? One aspect I can say is, um, I can go back to the compound that we are working on, which is SLSO2, which is for suicidality. Mm -hmm. Things like that and indications of that nature where you cannot wait for 28 days for your AAV gene therapy to take an effect. <laughs> so certain routes of administration is always going to be there. And for certain indications, you need to have that immediate access to both the brain to have an immediate effect and also some systemic and probably not as much as systemic exposure. In those kinds of cases, um, intranasal delivery would uh, still always be the go-to for uh, those kinds of uh, diseases and indications. Yeah, well, I think we've all witnessed sort of the rise of the mRNA nucleic acid-based therapeutics. And it's, you know, for us, it's been a very interesting ride because um, our my R01, which we got in 2018, was on a um, brain-derived neurotrophic factor antagonist delivery platform through the mucosa. And this obviously was pre-pandemic, and, you know, those types of therapeutics were interesting from a sort of theoretical and academic perspective, but obviously, as far as approved medications, very few. Now, fast forward post-pandemic, you know, we have obviously huge safety profile in these types of drugs. I think that's, um, that to me is the most, you know, sort of a very promising uh, landscape to move into the future, you know. Um, and I think we have great data on, on the nose to brain uh, delivery for those types of therapeutics. So I think, you know, again, from a, a depot perspective, um, you know, we're very excited about that. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess thinking through and, you know, in the context of partnership and collaboration, um, thinking about devices, formulations, um, or potential drugs that would be amenable to intranasal delivery, what would get you excited um, in the context of, you know, if someone came to you and said, hey, I have this very interesting prospect and I think intranasal delivery is the space for it, what would, what would kind of, um, yeah, basically, like, bring, get your attention? Maybe an AAV-based approach through intranasal would would be interesting, but how do you overcome the biodistribution challenge to all the areas of the brain, especially the deep brain regions? But you do have one advantage with going intranasal is you are going to go some deeper levels, but how do you then reach the cortical layers and whatnot? So that would be something interesting to me to see if they have some interesting way to overcome those. That would get me excited. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, five years ago, I would have said neurodegenerative space, Alzheimer's, you know, but now we're seeing multiple biologics that are coming on the market. But, you know, we know, and it's been as referenced in the prior panel, they're given systemically, they have to be given at massive doses, they probably cause blood brain barrier irritation and inflammation on the way in. So I think um, optimizing the current sort of class of drugs for neurodegenerative disease, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, um, and on down the line, and then next generation therapeutics for those obviously as well. So I think, I think that the neurodegenerative sort of population is only growing, we know that. And so I think that sort of class of disease uh, is, our, is our, you know, sort of highest priority interest. But then you go on to neuro-oncology and um, psychiatry and so forth. So there's a, a lot of interest there. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, and you know, I think thinking about brain delivery in particular, since we're talking a lot about nose to brain delivery, um, com in comparison to kind of the more traditional ways of delivering to the brain, um, either intrathecal, intracisterna magna, even intravenous if it's a BBB penetrating molecule, um, how do you think intranasal delivery compares to, I guess, first the sort of direct local administration routes and then next to the systemic situation? You both kind of touched on it, but just to delve a little deeper. Um, I used to work in those drug delivery fields before. So one of the advantages and disadvantages of that is uh, you need to have devices to go to those areas. And even if you do have those devices to go, your biodistribution is always going to be limited, including um, ASOs with a one approved for SMA. You can reach only spinal cord, which is why like the only approved one ASO so far is still SMA. And now with Tofersen, we have an ALS approval. But still, they'll have, you have toxicity issues with ASOs if you give it higher doses. I think even as the previous panel touched upon, how often do you have to give it? It's very invasive whatnot. Versus an intranasal kind of approach, one, you get to your target area closer, sooner, and uh, you might not have to uh, have those kinds of issues with devices per se to be more invasive, be in a, a kind of um, interventional neurology kind of setting to have access to imaging and things of that nature because not all of them have straight spines. You have scoliosis, whatnot. So it leads to all of those issues. You would be able to overcome those with an intranasal kind of approach. And uh, uh, that, uh, that is uh, always an advantage of going this route. So. Yeah, having performed many lumbar punctures myself, I can tell you it's, uh, it, it is a challenge for the patient. Um, and when we think about trying to scale, if we had a successful therapeutic where we're trying to deliver to millions of patients who are, who are developing and will develop things like Alzheimer's in the future, um, you know, these are procedures that may take 20, 30 minutes. Patients have to lie flat for hours. It has to be done sterilely. There's issues of bleeding, meningitis, retained um, foreign bodies, catheter malposition, so you take that and then you, you know, sort of transpose that on, for example, a patient walks into my clinic, sits down in a clinic chair, maybe with a topical anesthetic, they get an injection that takes 30 seconds and they leave and they're on their way. And maybe you have 50%, 30% of the total efficacy that you would have had intrathecally, but you can redose them every week if you want. So I think, you know, there's, there's just a huge difference between those two sort of pathways and again, um, we think there are, there's just a lot of opportunity there, particularly as it pertains to some of the more sort of invasive uh, blood-brain barrier penetrating technologies. To add on to that, since you mentioned the surgical aspect of that, you can actually access deeper brain areas through the nasal route much more easier than, say, you want to thread a catheter all the way up your spinal cord, which I did, by the way. <laughs> so those are not easy to do, and like it, it, there's a lot of device challenges to overcome there, but this offers a much better alternative in that sense as well. Yeah, it's really interesting to consider the difference in distribution profile coming from the spinal cord versus through the nasal cavity. Um, and I know we've got a pretty solid audience, so I think coming up on the 10-minute mark, if there are any questions from the audience, feel free to walk over to the microphone, and, and I'll, you know, we'll call on you to, to ask the experts. Um, and, you know, while people think about it, I guess thinking a little bit, for drugs that you normally would dose IV, but that you want to deliver to the brain, um, sort of clarifying where intranasal delivery could be more beneficial than sort of the classic um, either oral, intravenous, subcutaneous dosing situation. Um, again, I would go to the, I would say now, 
classic example of how we deliver our SLSO2, which is an intranasal ketamine, racemic ketamine, versus with IV, you always need to have good location, have access to your veins, repeat dosing being an issue. And the way we deliver now this um, SLS002, we pretty much nulled all the bad effects of ketamine, so we pretty much have no dissociation, whatnot, that it could pretty much either be an outpatient or if the FDA gives us a much better REMS, then we, it could pretty much be like any other spray that you would take. And those are the advantages that uh, you still get the same effect, much lesser uh, side effect or any of the side effect profile that you would have while still having all the benefits of the drug. So. Uh, those are the advantages with intranasal versus with anything, including sub-Q versus then you'll have to again have the pre-filled injections, this versus like you just spray and you're done. <laughs> so, Yeah, I think um, there, it's just very interesting to see the, the unique pathways that drugs take when given endonasally because we know that some component are going intraaxonally, probably the majority is going through the CSF, through the, uh, the, the arachnoid sheath that's around the olfactory nerves. Some large component is probably going through the trigeminal pathway as well. So, so it's not just nose to brain. It's, it's a very specific pathway that these drugs are taking that is unique to that area, as you said, and that you cannot recapitulate with really any other way. So I think um, you know, leveraging that, um, finding drugs that are uh, sort of optimized for that pathway is, is part of that process. But, um, but it, 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 there are surprises along the way. <laughs> yes, absolutely, as always in science. Um, it looks like we've got one or two questions. Um, could you speak more about, you know, let's say I'm sold on intranasal delivery to the brain. Um, how, what, what would you say is as advice for starting with the animal work to get there and to characterize that? Well, I think I, I probably we're going to take two different approaches because we're going to have the traditional intranasal, I imagine. I don't want to put words in your mouth. And then our, our approach, which would be the sort of intranasal depot approach where we're actually directly placing a drug in the sub-olfactory um, epithelium. And for that approach, our animal models actually require us to expose the deep aspect of the olfactory mucosa and then put a drug over that and allow it to move retrograde. And in that sense, we can do PK work in the brain peripherally, as well as PD, because you can use really any uh, rodent model of disease that are, that are out there. So I think from, from a... Um, from a depot perspective, we, we've published on this extensively about our, these types of um, sort of direct uh, approaches, again, where we transdorsally expose that olfactory submucosa. And the nice thing there is, is un, well, we believe that unlike many of, of the rodent models that overestimate the drug uh, delivery capacity of a rodent, this actually probably underestimates it because we're exposing a very small surface area relative to what you could get um, in, a, in a human. I think the exact opposite take to that to say, <laughs> when you do it in a rodent, your rodents are actually um, nasal creatures. So they have a much bigger representation of the nasal area and including what processes happen there with the brain as well, compared to what is in a human. So that gives you much more of an effect of what you see there could translate to what you see in larger creatures and you can recapitulate it in larger animals and you see a similar PKPD profile there. So in either case, you take that approach or a traditional approach, you have an overexposure or underexposure in this case, and you'd still be able to see the effect, which makes it much more likely that your therapy may work as you go higher up. So uh, hence, it's always a very enticing way to go through. 
So my question is a good follow-on because how to make it so that you could have better absorption from this site and uh, how can you kind of stack the deck in your favor? And one of the things that was explored, I think, in the 90s, and you may have referred to it, it's just slightly there uh, about uh, even permeation enhancers. Some of the early formulation, and I think it was uh, uh, Dr. Hussein, maybe University of Kentucky, had done extensive work with trying to have things to increase the permeability of this barrier. Um, by using permeation enhancers. And I think it caused a lot of irritation. So I think that's probably something we wouldn't do. Can you think of anything else that could be much more um, gentle to the tissue while still increasing its permeability? And is that getting built into any of the strategies that you have for intranasal delivery so that you can increase the amount that you're going to try to get into the brain? No, you're spot on on that. There is a lot of work, as I said, like this field has been ignored for a long time, and this COVID-19 has essentially reignited some of those. So there are a few companies currently working on increasing the formulation just to make sure there is a larger exposure, not just for the case of nose to brain in this particular instance as we are focusing on, but also more exposure to different indications as well, like more systemic, more exposure to lungs, more exposure to the brain, having it stay longer so that way there's enough of a time for it to be taken up by these pathways. So all of those are currently available and uh, there are lots of different compounds being explored and hence formulation is becoming important for that and there are certain uh, characteristics that are already being done for intranasal where we know what needs to be a pH, what needs to be there for it to be taken up and all of those are uh, now being taken advantage of for these uh, specific reasons. So without tissue damage, right? Yes, without tissue damage, yes, of course, yeah. Wonderful, um, and I think we touched a little bit on sort of the differentiated distribution profile of, of intranasal delivery. So I'm kind of curious if the two of you have sort of any applications that you think are very uniquely suited to intranasal delivery where kind of intranasal delivery or nose to brain delivery could address that indication where other approaches simply cannot. I think, um, so going back to sort of the neurodegenerative component, we have repeatedly seen pretty good uptake in the hippocampus, striatum, basal ganglia, and entorhinal cortex. And uh, there's actually some really nice research out of Mass Ioneer looking at some uh, families in Colombia who are genetically protected from developing Alzheimer's. And in, uh, even in two genetic mutants that are different in different families, both code two uh, changes in the entorhinal cortex. So, you know, from the nose to olfactory bulb to the entorhinal cortex is, is a relatively direct pathway, if, one, if such a pathway could be described. Um, and, and then similarly, trigeminal ganglion, trigeminal, you know, peripheral nerve uh, pathologies. Also, the nose is, is very richly innervated, as we know. So I think those are two sort of anatomic endpoints that are uniquely suited for nose to brain. Agree completely with what he said. Um, and also everything from things like Parkinson's, starts out as anosmia 10 years ago uh, before your first neurons die even. And so those kind of non-motor symptoms start primarily starting with olfactory. And trigeminal ganglia and trigeminal neurons are another th uh, area where you can directly uh, address through intranasal. I, I would just add, and this is purely speculative, but um, there is some evidence to suggest that possibly, I mean, there was an ophthalmology panel a couple panels back and there's some evidence to suggest that transnasal delivery can also deliver to the orbit and the retina. Um, again, speculative, but, uh, but that data is out there. So that's a, a, another sort of third possible um, end organ. Yeah, so as our 
our question asker noted, you've, you've convinced me this is very cool, but let's say I'm a skeptic because, you know, like so many sort of drug delivery situations, when you look at a lot of the sort of publications and the rodent data, and then you look at what's actually been translated clinically, there's, you know, a pretty huge drop off between what we see in the preclinical space and what's actually translated clinically. So what would you say to the skeptics is sort of holding, holding back um, the, the grand potential of intranasal delivery? There's really nothing I would say in terms of uh, the COVID-19 has had some blessings in disguise, and one of them I would say is the intranasal field is now finally getting some recognition. <laughs> and there are uh, certain therapies, as I mentioned, where intranasal is the route you want to go, and that hopefully can expand more to uh, other indications and other delivery modalities as well, including as we discussed, like things like neurodegenerative diseases could be addressed early on by tackling the intranasal approach. Yeah, and I would just say I am probably the ultimate skeptic. It was, be, skepticism was the basis of my entire the past 13 years of research in this field, which is why we developed an alternative route of delivery. Um, if you look back in the literature, there was a, a really interesting article by a first author named Mercus, who was actually an ENT like myself, uh, who, had, who had perused the prior literature and essentially said there was no evidence of actual clinical uh, translatability. At least this was in the late 90s. So... Um, yeah, I am I'm in that camp, preaching to the choir. <laughs> All right, and you know, we're, we're coming up on time, but I guess, what would you recommend to a researcher that's, you know, exploring a promising, promising drug or um, potential therapeutic, and they're thinking about intranasal delivery? Um, I guess, what would you recommend to them um, as they sort of consider the routes of administration and whether their therapeutic is amenable to this route? I would say definitely consider it. It's going to be challenging, and there are a lot of hurdles, as we discussed, in terms of models or how do you even recapitulate some of those. But you might be surprised by the benefits more than uh, the hurdles that you would overcome, and those definitely are much more in the positive direction from intranasal, at least from what we've seen, including from things like small molecule to other kind of delivery, where you might be making your active compound much better by delivering through intranasal. Yeah, I would just say I think we're entering a new era. We have new classes of drugs. We have new mechanisms of delivery, and we have uh, better ways to test PK and PD. So I think putting those together, I, I think this is a blossoming, you know, re-blossoming of this area. Wonderful. And four seconds remaining, so right on time, everyone. Um, thank you all so much for your time and attention, and even thank our wonderful expert speakers. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. For more information about the Pod Conference editorial, podcasts, or webcasts, please visit podconference.com. Thanks for listening.